We're in uh, this new series. We entitled it, We Are Free. It's the first week in the book of Galatians. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Galatians. And we're going to start shockingly in chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, we'll go from there. You know, one of the interesting things about communication is it's not just what words we share, but it's also the way in which we share what we share. That is a part of communication. Let me give you an example. If you need to go to the DMV or something like that, they're going to ask you for your full name and you're going to give them your first, middle, and last name. I assume that you have those. That's different than when you were a child and uh, let's say your mom yells at you your first, middle, and last name. You know, oh, oh, she means business. But it's a whole different kind of business than the DMV business. Do you know what I mean? Because the manner and the tone in which we speak is actually a form of the communication itself. It's not just the words we say, but it's the way in which the words are said. And you know what? In the book of Galatians, we actually see this, that it's not only what Paul has written for us and the words he has chosen to use, but he punctuates all that he writes by the manner or the tone in which he writes. There's a sense in which Paul is frustrated, he's shocked, he's dismayed, he's confused, he's concerned. And so as we approach the book of Galatians, we're going to have to start with an introduction and we're going to have to get a lay of the land, so to speak, kind of a, get a feel for what's going on here. And then we'll be able to dive into our text, which is verses 1 through 5. So let's read that. Now, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Father, we ask that you would grant us the things that you have promised to give us as 2 Timothy 2.7 says, we need to think over these things, for you will give us understanding. And so, God, we are asking that you would grant us understanding of your word as we do the thing that you've asked us to do, which is to think. So, Lord, we also know that thinking is a crucial part of how we love you. So I pray that you would grant us illumination in our minds and our hearts to see and behold to believe and cherish all that we read in your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in this book. Thank you for the privilege it is that is ours to gather together as your people. And so I pray that you teach us now for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're gonna do a quick little overview. Now, there are three main themes that I wanna point out to you, and I know I'm no fool. I understand that there's other themes in the book of Galatians, but these are kind of the three trunks and then there's a bunch of little limbs that kind of uh, come off of the side of these three trunks. And so we'll take them one at a time. Here's one of the first themes that we should notice is this. The gospel that Paul taught is the true gospel. To reject Paul's gospel is to reject the gospel itself. And we get that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 where the apostle Paul is going to cover things like how he came to be an apostle um, how he came to learn the gospel, what it was that he preached, and also some of his encounters with the other apostles like James and Peter and John. 
The second major theme that we see in the book of Galatians is Paul's defense of the gospel through two things. One is through experience, which you see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, is the experience of the Galatians themselves. And Paul begins to defend the truth of the gospel through that. And then secondly, what the apostle Paul does is begin to defend the gospel from scripture. What we mean by scripture is the Old Testament. And so when you look at what Paul has written in chapters 3 and chapter 4 in Galatians, that is his defense. And Paul is going to refer to Abraham. He's going to refer to Moses. He's going to refer to the law. He's going to refer to sonship, inheritance. He's going to mention two ladies, Sarah and Hagar. And he's going to say that Sarah and Hagar are allegorical, allegorically interpreted as the old and the new covenant. And when you put all this together in chapter 3 and 4 of Galatians, you start to realize unless we have a working understanding of the Old Testament, we're probably going to miss out on some things. So we need to be understanding of what in the world we're talking about when we talk about covenants and we talk about Moses and Abraham. And that is one of the reasons why we decided to work through the covenants when we did our all church churchwide discipleship campaign in January, February, is we wanted to make sure that we as a church are familiar with this language because the Bible itself uses it and we're not going to be able to understand the Bible unless we're familiar with the language. Now I know in our culture it's really popular to believe that Christianity ought to be simple and it ought to be easy and you ought to be able to microwave your spirituality. It's just if it costs you if it requires anything of you, if it demands something of you, you're kind of like, ah, I don't want that. Who's got time for that? And so I want to push back on that kind of mentality and help us to understand that God has designed it, that he has revealed himself in a book. And the book by which God has revealed himself contains words. And the words are organized into cohesive structures called paragraphs and sentences and Jesus actually argues for theological truths such as his deity and resurrection based on the tense of one particular verb. So when you think about that, you start to realize, oh, God actually wants us to know grammar. Yes. He actually told, Jesus actually told the Pharisees that they were quite wrong because they didn't understand grammar. Think about it. Let that sit in for a minute. So if we're going to understand the Bible, then we need to understand words, how they fit together and what they mean and what sentences are put together and how they're put together. And, and the other thing about our culture today is we have no patience for sustained listening. We will sit in a movie theater for hours on end, but we're constantly entertained. Yeah. Blowing stuff up. Yeah. But if you have to sit and listen to someone speak for an extended amount of time, that's why I get all the emails about why I talk so long and how horrible it is. <laughs> it's part of our sanctification. <laughs> but in our culture, we don't, we don't like that. We don't want to have to sit and listen to someone speak with clarity or to write with clarity and try to follow their train of thought. But if we don't do that, then we might as well just throw the Bible away because it requires thinking. It requires patience. It requires us to read carefully. 
And in fact, the whole of chapter 3 and chapter 4 will be totally lost if we don't basically come to the text and say, okay, I'll read it patiently. Thirdly, there is the call to live in freedom of the gospel by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ according to the Spirit. Let me read that again. There is a call, a major theme is the call to live in the freedom of the gospel by God's grace through faith in Christ according to the Spirit of God. And we see this in chapter 5 and chapter 6 where we get a picture of the absolute beauty of the gospel. That it has set us free from the bondage of sin and from the fear of death and from the coming judgment of God, the wrath of God. And then Paul lays out what it looks like to actually live as free people. And not only that, but then he commands us as free people to live out our identity free of the fear of sin and death and the coming wrath of God and what that means to walk in faith and what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. All of that is laid out in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And so Paul is consistently highlighting the grace of God and our salvation. He constantly is laying out the fact that our faith is the instrument through which salvation comes to us and that faith is not the cause of our salvation. It's the instrument through which salvation comes to us. The cause of our salvation is God. God is the one who did it. And so we receive it by faith. And the other thing we need to know is the tone of the letter. We need to understand kind of where Paul's coming from. And so instead of me telling you what it is and giving all the goods away right from the beginning, we're going to read it together. So if you have your, your Bible, this is the time to look at it. And, and pick it up. And if you're on a device, you're going to have to scroll. Galatians 1.6 is where we see. This is after the first five verses, which are the introductory remarks of Paul. The first thing out of Paul's mouth or the first thing that he writes after he gives them a greeting is, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the gospel or in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Like, huh, that, that seems a rather abrupt way to greet somebody. And then we see in chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or who has caused you to come under a spell? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Galatians chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You yourselves, uh, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And then he jumps down to verse 16. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 19 and 20. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Chapter 5, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then he gets weird. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. What is going on? 
you don't know what that word means, don't look it up. <laughs> Ask somebody. <laughs> what does he mean by that? Well, that's not our chapter for today, so we'll get there eventually. By the way, if you have this book, you can go read ahead and figure out what all that means. All right. But let's go back to our te text, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. And so I have to preach in the tone in which Paul has written. Does that make sense? I have to do that. If I preach glibly and I tell nothing but jokes, I as a preacher have not understood the book of Galatians. The tone of my preaching has to match the tone of what is written. For the point of the sermon has to be the point of the text. And the point of the text has to be the point of the sermon. You tracking with me? So... What is Paul's tone? It's stern. It's urgent. And so he writes, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul begins his letter in typical fashion. All the ancient letters in Paul's day would have started out by identifying the author, and that's what Paul does. He says, Paul... And so we have literally at our disposal thousands of letters written in the first century by which we can compare the New Testament letters. And the New Testament letters called epistles are not unique. They are typical letters written in a typical way at this time. And Paul identifies himself. And then what's typical in letters in the New Testament era is that the credentials of the author are to be identified. And so the thing that Paul says next is Paul, an apostle. Now, what in the world is an apostle? An apostle literally, or the word in Greek means messenger. It's someone who is sent. It means someone who is sent by somebody else. And being sent by that other person, they bear the authority because they are the representative or the emissary of the person who sent them. And so the apostle Paul is saying, I am sent by another and I have the authority of another because I represent the other. Now, who does Paul represent? We'll get there in a second. But let's look again at the apostle kind of motif, the idea, the, the theme. Now, there were apostles of Jesus, which means there were men who were appointed to be apostles or messengers who were to represent and have the authority delegated to them by Jesus himself. And Paul identifies now as a Christian that he is not merely someone who believes, but he is in fact an apostle. And if you jump uh, in the rest of the text, that it came through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so Paul is an apostle because Jesus has commissioned him as such. What that means is he is the messenger or the representative or the emissary of Jesus and his message, which is the gospel. Now, what's really important to understand is when Paul identifies his apostleship, he says it came through Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. Somehow in Paul's mind, the qualification to be an apostle is somehow related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he does that, he, he connects this thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, where Paul says, am I not free? 
And the whole chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is his defense of being a true apostle. And he asks this next question, am I, am I not an apostle? And then notice what he asks next, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And so when Paul puts together this concept that he is an apostle because of Jesus who is risen from the dead, and then he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus risen from the dead? Then what Paul is doing is helping us to understand to be an apostle is to be someone who has visibly seen the resurrected Jesus in bodily form. Paul has seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. He has had an encounter with Jesus. And in that encounter with Jesus, Jesus commissioned Paul to be his messenger to take the gospel to the nations. Just like Jesus gave the commission to the apostles in Matthew 28 to go into all the earth, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making disciples. Remember that? And so there's a connection between apostleship and meeting the risen Jesus. And I would say it like this. An apostle is somebody who has a, an encounter with the risen Jesus who has had a personal instructive commissioning by Jesus to go and be his messenger and to be his authority to be a preacher or to be uh, a teacher of the gospel. That means there, are nobody, there is nobody alive today who is an apostle because nobody living today has ever seen Jesus in his bodily resurrected form. Now, many people were questioning Paul's apostleship. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 10 and 11. He writes at length in those two churches about why he should be considered an apostle. And we ask ourselves, why? Why did he have to defend himself so much? And in part, it was because, at least in Corinth, the people didn't think his preaching was that good. And so they're like, he can't be an apostle. He's not very good. Like, nobody's downloading his podcast. Like, how can he be an apostle? Now, the other reason why they were questioning is because the apostle Paul was not one of the original apostles. And people started going, why should we listen to this dude? He wasn't even one of the original 12. And so the apostle Paul actually mentions this kind of thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, where in chapter 15, he talks about how Jesus rose from the dead and how he um, actually revealed himself and, and Peter saw him and the other disciples saw him and 500 other people saw Jesus risen. And then in verse 8, where the apostle Paul says, and lastly, he appeared to me as one untimely born. Meaning Paul is confessing, you know what? He appeared to the disciples and many other people, but here's the reality is um, like I was kind of the odd man out. I kind of came later in the game. I was a couple years afterwards. And so when Paul admits that he came a little bit afterwards, after the original disciples, the original apostles, that gave his, I don't know, the people in Corinth, that gave them all the ammunition they needed to question whether or not Paul was tr a, true, an, a true apostle. Can Paul really be an apostle? He wasn't one of the original 12. But Paul's defense is, no, I am one of the, I am an apostle, even though I'm not one of the original 12s. And the reason is because I have seen Jesus risen from the dead. 
and he commissioned me to preach the gospel to all nations. Now, where do we see that? We actually read about it in Acts chapter 9, in verses 5 and 6, where the apostle Paul is knocked off his feet. And being knocked off his feet, he says in verse 5, or he asks the question, who are you, Lord? Because Jesus appears. And Paul's going, whoa. And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Paul gets up, and he goes to the city. And God had talked to a man named Ananias. And God says to Ananias, here's what I want you to tell Paul about what it is he needs to go do. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So here we see that Paul meets the risen Jesus. Paul receives his commission through the messenger of Ananias that he is to take the gospel to the nations. And thus Paul becomes a messenger or an apostle of Jesus, by Jesus, because he's seen Jesus risen from the dead. First Corinthians, uh, Galatians 1 verses 11 and 12 are really significant because it's more than just the Paul's status as an apostle, but it's also the message that he is commissioned to speak. Where Paul says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that, I was, that was preached by me is not man's gospel, Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the apostle Paul is actually writing and saying, not only am I an apostle because I have seen Jesus risen from the dead and he's commissioned me to be his messenger, but the very message that I've been entrusted with, I did not learn from anybody. God gave it to me. Jesus taught me it. Now think about this for a moment. Who discipled you? Who taught you how to read the Bible? Who taught you the gospel? And no matter who it was and no matter how godly and awesome they were, I bet you Paul can always be better than whoever discipled you because his discipler is Jesus. Jesus taught Paul how to read the Bible. Jesus taught Paul what the gospel is. Jesus gave Paul all that he needed to preach. And so here's the result or here's the conclusion that we can draw. Because Paul is an apostle, having met Jesus resurrected from the dead, having been given a commission to preach the gospel to all the nations, and having received the gospel directly from the mouth of Jesus, then to reject Paul is to reject who? Jesus. And to reject Paul's teaching is to reject whose teaching? Jesus. Uh-oh. Brothers and sisters, do you sense how important it is to get this teaching of Paul right? This is not Paul's teaching. This is Jesus' teaching. And so we can't tinker with this. We can't monkey around with this. We can't just go, eh, I don't like that part. I like this part, though. This is awesome. Can't do that. Because we don't have the authority to do that. 
And also, we aren't the ones who have been commissioned by Jesus because we have seen him risen from the dead and he has taught us from his very mouth what is the true gospel. Instead, the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles is contained in the New Testament. And not only that, but the authority of the apostles also is in their teaching, which is the New Testament. So that is why we say the Bible is sufficient to give us all that we need to know in order to save us, but also the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and life because the Bible is God's authority. And so let's not, let's not horse around with this. I hope you sense the gravity of what we're endeavoring to do as a church in studying the book of Galatians. The other thing is like, we need to make sure we understand what Paul is talking about here. He said, my apostleship is not, look at this in verse one, verse one, my apostleship, me being an apostle, did not come from men nor through man. It did not come from a body of human beings, men. It did not come from a single man. And so what Paul's saying is no group of people got together and went, man, you're super gifted. Yeah, okay, you're an apostle. Or no one individual who's like, man, I'll have all the power. I can do whatever. I'll lay my hands on you. Now you're an apostle like Oprah does with, now you get a taco and you get a, it's nothing like that. Paul says, no group of people, no single individual gave me the authority to be an apostle and commission me. God alone gave it to me. Now, when Paul says, no man gave it to me, but God gave it to me. But then in the same breath, Paul says, Jesus gave it to me. So Jesus gave it to me. God gave it to me. Man didn't give it to me. In effect, what Paul's saying is, Jesus is God. Whoa. Whoa. Therefore, to defy Paul is to go against God's appointed authority. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary on Galatians, he writes this, Paul's authority was not human but divine. Therefore, Paul's message is God's own message about salvation from sin. And anyone who sets aside his apostolic teaching sets aside the gospel truth of Jesus Christ himself. And this is why Paul's tone was so stern and so urgent. Because these are gospel issues. This is serious business. This is life and death. And as we're going to see, Paul then is going to break down the beauty of the gospel. He's going to talk about the glorious freedom we have in Christ. And then he's going to talk about the love and the joy we have in the gospel through the Holy Spirit. And so one of the, my favorite phrases about what does it mean to be a Christian is this. We are serious about joy. We're dead serious about finding our greatest joy in God. So now we... See in verse 2, Paul's accompanied by other brothers. Uh, that's the Greek word which means siblings, but it's in the masculine form, and so it's always translated as brothers, but it, always, it can refer to brothers and sisters. So it's the church who is with him to the churches of Galatia. You can read about that in your workbook, about how this is a circular letter, which means if you don't have the, uh, the study guide...
Man, procrastination, it's a bummer, huh? Okay, you can still get it. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays this very common prayer. It's twofold, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul does is pretty cool. What he does is he prays for peace, which is the Jewish, the, the common way Jewish people would uh, greet one another using the word shalom, which means peace, which is kind of the concept of the world as it ought to be. And so we greet one another and we say shalom, which we understand would come from God. It's, it's our desire to see the world set right. But then there's also the word charis, which is grace. And that word is what the Greeks would use to actually greet one another, understanding that all is of grace. And so what Paul's doing even in this prayer is reminding us that the church is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And then he says that this is from, look at this, grace to you in peace from, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means we don't generate or self-generate grace and peace, it comes to us. How? And that's what he's going to spend verse 4 explaining, how grace and peace come to us. He writes, who gave himself, and the who is in reference to Jesus. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is important because Paul is going to say four significant things in verse 4. Four significant things in verse 4. And we're going to take these one by one. And I want to show you the, the, the one that is more sweeping. It's bigger. And that is going to be the last little clause in the sentence. I know I'm giving you big words. I'm doing it on purpose. So in this sentence, there's the first clause, which is who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And then there's the second clause, which is according to the will of our God and Father. That second clause extends over the whole thing, which means everything that came in the first part is because of the second part. So everything is because of the will of, of God our Father. Now this is significant because what Paul is saying is it was the will of God our Father that Jesus would be crucified. Now this is a teaching that we need to get wrapped in our minds because it's everywhere. We read it in Acts chapter 2 actually where the apostle Peter is preaching. And he actually preaches this. He says, this Jesus delivered up which is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, and he's speaking to uh, a collection who are gathered of, of religious leaders. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so you notice it was the definite plan of God according to his foreknowledge to make sure that Jesus would be crucified at the hands of lawless men and you can see that the will of God plays a central feature in Paul's writings actually I can't read all of this because we don't have enough time but if you if you read it yourself you'll see in Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3 where Paul it's the most I think it's a run-on sentence but it's the most beautiful sentence it's virtually half of the chapter of Ephesians 1, one sentence, punctuation. Please, Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, and look at this, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And he continues on, and I would commend you to read the rest. But do you see it? One of the central features of Paul is that our redemption was not an accident. Jesus went to the cross not by coincidence. He actually went because it was the plan of God. It was the definite plan of God to send his son to rescue sinners from their sin and from the wrath of God. God had intended to do this. This is significant. Why is it significant? Because it tells us the next part, verse 4, we'll go back to the beginning of verse 4, that Jesus gave himself. So it was the plan of God our Father that God the Son would be crucified and risen for our salvation. And the work of redemption is then applied to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So our salvation is dependent upon the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's Trinitarian language. All of God, all three persons of God are involved in our redemption. And look at the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. It says in verse 4, the first three words, he gave himself. Now we may gloss over that and just speed on, but you have to stop for a moment and say, wait a minute, Jesus gave himself? You see, there's a difference between when somebody gives you something and you take it. When you take something from someone, you're stealing. But if they give it to you, that is a gift. You see, Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus gave his life. Now, why is that significant? Because think about this. Romans 5.8 says that we know God loves us. He has demonstrated his love for us in that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has died for us. That expresses God's love for us. But what if Jesus died reluctantly? What if Jesus went to the cross kicking and screaming, I don't want this, I don't want it, no. How, how much love would that reveal to us? Yeah, Jesus loves you so much, he died for you reluctantly. He didn't want to. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. But what's interesting is Jesus actually did lay down his life on his own accord. He gave up his life. Look at this in John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because, Jesus says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so God wants us to know that the love he has for us, which was the motivation for Jesus' coming to rescue us, is what stands behind Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus didn't die reluctantly. 
Jesus came to do the Father's will. And what was the Father's will? That Jesus would lay down his life for his sheep. That's why Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, because I know you're thinking it. Didn't Jesus say, not my will, but yours be done? Yes. Yes. Jesus' prayer was, Father, this is going to be hard. And in my humanity, I really don't want to endure this suffering. But because it is your will, let's go. I'll do it. And he gave himself, not reluctantly, but joyfully, freely, to demonstrate God's love for us. And then also it says he died for our sins. You know, people begin to think that the cross of Jesus is just a great example of sacrifice and love. It's a beautiful portrayal. But I would say, no, no, no. It is that, but it's not merely that. Jesus came to do more than just fill your heart with sentimentality. Jesus came to rescue you. And in fact, Jesus did something on the cross. Namely, he bore our sins and he took upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God in our place. In other words, Jesus became a substitute where he substituted himself for for us. And there on the cross, he made atonement for our sins That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Jesus did not die to give you a great example and a quick pick-me-up of how you too can be sacrificial to others. Instead, Jesus died because you hated God. You were a rebel against God. You did not want God to interfere in your life. You loved sin more than you loved God. And you would have never, ever come to God had God not revealed himself to you. And when God sent Jesus and Jesus there hung on the cross as our substitute, he, to- he bore upon himself our weight of sin and the fullness of the wrath of God was poured out on him and not us. That's why the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Pastor Michael Lawrence writes it like this. The entire storyline of scripture, the history of redemption is the story of God providing substitutes for his people to cover their shame and to bear the judgment that they deserve so that they might be accepted by him. That's what you see in the Old Testament laws about animal sacrifices. It's always God providing a substitute. And yet it's, he goes on to say, that alone is a story of undeserved grace and amazing love. But all along, God's plan and purpose was not only to provide the substitute, but it was to be the substitute in the person of his son, Jesus bearing in himself the punishment we could not bear and the shame we could not overcome. And therefore, the gospel is a compelling story, for it is full of grace, full of love. The story of God's substitutionary atonement is the story of a passionate expression of God's love. It is the pinnacle of glory. If we lose substitutionary atonement, we not only lose the story of redemption in the Bible, but we lose the love and the glory of God as well. 
You see, brothers and sisters, if we don't understand that Jesus substituted himself for us, we actually miss out on the beautiful truth that God deeply loves us. He died for us. Not reluctantly. Hebrews 12 says he joyfully endured the cross. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, something amazing happens. Look at the rest of verse 4. That because of that, we are delivered from the present evil age. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The word deliver is what is used to describe the exodus when God's people were delivered out of bondage. It's the idea of being freed from slavery. It's, it's no longer being enslaved to something which has dominion over you. You've been totally set free. The chains are gone. You're now able to exit of your own volition. Now, what is the present evil age? The present evil age is defined as the totality of human life dominated by sin and opposed to God. You read about this more in your study guide. But what is just said here is staggering. Because Jesus is God in the flesh who lived the sinless life that you and I couldn't and that he joyfully and that he willfully gave up himself to bear our sins upon a cross so that by the shedding of his blood, he would atone for our sins and there hung naked and abused as our substitute that makes us, qualifies us to be acceptable before God. Jesus, the one who was buried in a tomb and three days later rose from the dead. This Jesus has accomplished redemption which means through his life, death, and resurrection, he is now offering total freedom that if we will repent of our sins and we will believe in Jesus crucified and risen for our salvation, that God will release us from the domain of darkness. He will take off the bondage of our sin and he will totally liberate us to walk in absolute freedom in the glory of God and to be people who live according to the things he has called us to live. Now, Even though we've been rescued from the present evil age, even though we are no longer enslaved to sin, no longer uh, do, do we have, are we being dominated by sin, we've been set free. Does that, why do we still sin? Like what's going on there? Do you get that? If we've been rescued or redeemed from the present evil age, why in the world do we still sin? Why, what's going on with that? And we have to realize that what God began in Jesus, he will eventually bring to completion. But in the meantime, from Jesus' first coming until his second coming, we're going to live in this present evil age. But we have to realize while we live in this present evil age, you are not under the dominion of sin. And we as Christians need to finally get it through our thick heads that this is what God has done for us. The reason why we sin is because we love it. We Christians sin because we love it, not because we have to sin. Look at this in Titus chapter 2. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, which is a metaphor to say Jesus has appeared. And when Jesus appeared, he brought salvation for all people. And the grace of God, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, as we meditate and reflect upon the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, we are being taught how to say no to sin. 
you actually can say no to sin. You don't have to sin. Say no. Because God has given you the power to say no in Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 8 says, those who are not in Christ, they cannot do anything but sin. But those who are in Christ Jesus, they can not sin. And so we need to learn to say no to sin and then the rest of us. And and the grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives where? In the present age. The grace of God is our tutor. The grace of God is our instructor. The grace of God is the means by which we say no to sin, yes to godliness while we live in this present evil age because we've been delivered. We've been delivered from sin. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness, been transferred into the kingdom of God's one and only beloved son. So let us live like kingdom citizens. We don't avoid sin in order to be accepted by God, but because Christ has done everything necessary to make us acceptable to God, we, in response, choose to not sin. That's the gospel. Tom Schreiner says the resurrection signifies that the new age has dawned upon us in which God will fulfill the saving promises to Israel and to the entire world. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, freedom has dawned. Philip Graham Reichen goes on to say that the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. So that through the gospel, through repentance and belief in the gospel, we are set free. Romans 6.22 reads like this, but now that you have been set free from sin, for those of us who have repented of our sin and actually believed in Jesus, you're set free. And now that you are set free, it says, and we have become slaves, no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves of God. The fruit that we get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, freedom has dawned. Freedom is here. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have repented and believed the gospel, you are free. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so, brothers and sisters, when Christ came, he set us free. He set us free from the domain of sin. He set us free from the fear of death. He set us free from the wrath of God. Freedom has dawned. And therefore, it is true. Our identity as Christians is that we are free. So God, thank you for this liberation. God, thank you that you have rescued us. Thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to do all that was necessary to accomplish so great a salvation. 
God, we thank you for his perfect life, which is the life we could never live. We thank you for his willingness to go to the cross as our substitute to take upon himself the punishment for our sins. Though he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. For that we give thanks. And that is why it is right and good for us, as verse 5 says, to attribute to you all glory and all praise. For you have done great things. And we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.